Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to the eighth episode of our Top 40 Career Update countdown list that we've been making our way through without really any structure or regard for structure. Uh, And I mentioned that today, Cody, because I think last time coming off the heels of the epic Jerry West, Oscar Robertson conversation that, as you predicted, 12 people have listened to so far, um, we, we are not, I don't think, I don't anticipate spending you know, 45 minutes deep diving a player today. I think we have some housekeeping to catch up on. We have to kind of grease the rails to make our way into the top 10. We're going to finish uh, with probably two more episodes in the top 10. We might have we might have a third episode uh, to finish up this series. But in general, today, the goal is to make our way into the top 10. So last time we talked about West and Oscar Robertson. I can't figure out West went backwards. He was 17th last time we had an update in 2019. Now he's 18th. He's going backwards despite me getting higher on him. I, I don't I don't know what's going on there. Uh, it confuses me probably more than any of you out there. He was 18th. Just to recap, we did Kevin Durant. Well, we did Charles Barkley at 22. We had a, a, a rousing Patreon extra 30-minute discussion about Charles Barkley. Uh, it's a Patreon post show, patreon.com slash thinkingbasketball if you want to check that out. Kevin Durant, 21. Julius Irving, 20. We talked about them. David Robinson at 19. We didn't really talk about David Robinson. Nothing nothing new that, that was moving me to discuss him that I didn't say in the Greatest Peak series last year covering David Robinson. Aforementioned Jerry West at 18. Chris Paul at 17. Steph Curry at 16. And Cody, we have not mentioned number 15. Last time we kind of glossed over him. Number 15... He was 18th last time. I have no idea how he moved up three spots. I don't know what's going on. I don't think I'm higher on him in any way whatsoever. I'm not even sure how much I've changed my assessment of him uh, over the years. Number 15 is longevity giant Dirk Nowitzki. First of all, when you say we're not going to spend a half hour, 45 minutes on a player, my first reaction is just, I, I, I don't believe you. I don't think that's the case. The, the Patreon extra with Charles Barkley was a no notes, no prep. Let's do this in 10 minutes. Half an hour later, boom, we talked about Charles Barkley. So we'll see. I'll do my best to follow your lead here. But Ben, I'm not confident about that. But Dirk, like, like you said, up three spots. What's going on here? No, I don't know. Like the spirit of this is to talk about changes and new ideas and new players and and uh, current players and kind of where they've moved since the latest update. And I just really don't have many new thoughts or changes on Dirk. And yet somehow with players moving up and moving down next to him and things like, I think that's what it is. I think other players are sliding up and sliding down. Um, but he's, he's in my mind, definitely less impressive than what we talked about last time when Jerry West, uh, you know, David Robinson. I put David Robinson in greatest peaks over Dirk. I'm very comfortable with him having a better peak. Steph Curry, we talked about a couple episodes ago. I'm quite comfortable with Curry's peak being on another level from Dirk Nowitzki. But Dirk just has this, like, beautiful prime, Cody. You know what I mean? He's just got um, these years where... For a very long time, he is either an all-NBA level player or an MVP level player. And it might be worth pausing and talking about that before we move on to the some of the main events in today's episode. Because you phrased it very well, where like, if you go back to maybe around number 40 on this list, or you think of someone like Paul Pierce, 
lot of good years, a lot of all-star years. You got some all-NBA years, not a particularly high peak in the all-time sense, things like that. That You do that for enough years, and on a career mileage list like this, that gets you around 40. Reggie Miller was kind of like a level up in a sense where it's like, man, you just got a ton of all-star years, but you have this beautiful all-NBA stretch in my assessment. We talked about Miller's insane scoring from like 1993 to 2000, 2001. You get eight or nine of those, it adds up. Then as you mentioned, you get to someone like Julius Irving and you keep tuning the dial up a little bit. You know what? You're turning the volume up. You're like, okay, Julius Irving is like an all-star for like 15 years and he has a number of all-NBA years, but now we're talking about an MVP level peak. So that gets you to the top. That's like what it takes to get you into the top 20. Dirk is a very similar player, but it's like a little better version of what we saw from the inconsistent. You know, we talked about Dr. J's inconsistencies and all the crazy things happening with the ABA and NBA. And with Dirk, I think you get to this like MVP level basically in 2005. And he holds that for, I don't know, six or seven years. And then the surrounding years, like, like, Dirk Nowitzki was really good in 2014, and Dirk Nowitzki was really good in 2001. And holy smokes, that's 14 basketball years. That's like, that's incredible. So, you know, he racks up all of these years of just being a very, very good player. But I think the question that I struggle with with Dirk is where do you see him peaking? Like, in what band does he peak? Because we talked about it offensively, just all time level scoring, especially in isolation. And I think people kind of credit him as being this portability god. But I don't necessarily think that's how he played. Like, he played a lot at the elbow, isolating there, hitting his his patented step-back fadeaway. He wasn't just, like, standing in the corners and running around screens and stuff. It was a lot of on-ball scoring like that. Not a great passer, and again, not a great defender. So I guess two questions. Where do you think his absolute peak is in terms of the bands that you have? And number two, where do you think he peaks offensively relative to his uh, to every other player in history? Well, offensively, I think he's got a pretty high peak. I, I don't think of him as someone who is, to use your word, like a portability god. I don't think he's super easy to plug into every offense and get like this fantastic maximal value. But he's such a great shooter. He can attack closeouts. Uh, you know, the way he can score in, in the middle of the floor, on the wings, going through the post... It's it's nice offense, and of course, he's big enough to even rebound. Or, uh, he does have a little movement. It's kind of like slow motion movement, but they Dallas would run offense that would have him come off screens, and it's really challenging when you're that skilled to defend a seven-footer coming off those screens. So uh, offensively, I mean, he's in like, we talked about Harden as like a top 15 peak of all time. I, w- I would kind of have him in that same ballpark, that same band. I mean... You know, maybe you could name 18 or 20 players I'd rather have. But if you take a more optimistic view, there's probably only like 10 guys tops in NBA history, I would think, uh, that you'd prefer offensively. He's just such a good scorer. And that spacing and the way he plays uh, is so good offensively. The defense is a bigger question mark to me. Like, you know, if you start talking about him as a negative defender and there are some issues then you know maybe that really brings him down that's the low end but um you know it's pretty consistent and he's pretty smart about where he puts his body as he gets older he blocks more shots than you would think because he's giant and he's a good defensive rebounder and you know in, in back in those days when there are more contested rebounds and the paint was a little more uh, clogged i think that rebounding had more value as we discussed earlier in this series cody i've gone back and forth 
between like 2006 and 2011. Um, frankly, I think when you take a step back and look at it, by the time you get to about 2010, he was pretty similar to 2011. He just has like a heater at the beginning of the 2011 playoffs. He doesn't have a great finals. I could go with, I, I could go back and forth. 2006, 2011, I, either of those periods to me, uh, he's pretty consistent throughout like a five or six year period of playing like a nice solid MVP. So you think he hits that peak and keeps it through 2011, or does he drop a bit before you get to like the 2009-ish range? Uh, if if there's a drop, it's relatively small because I think I think he's getting older and losing certain things, but he's also adding other stuff with the scoring arsenal and maybe positioning him better himself better defensively. You know, the other thing about the defense that's really tricky is, unlike offense, I think it's easier to have good defensive numbers when you look at like plus minus adjusted plus minus things like that i think it's easier to have better defensive numbers when you're in a great defensive environment right on offense there's only one ball so sometimes it's harder to to maximize your value but when you're like a weaker defender i think of steph curry in 2022 who we've talked about plenty improving as a defender but if you if you look at steph curry's defensive metrics cody they were like I want to say in EPM, estimated plus minus, which is maybe the best uh, one number metric on the market for those sort of things. Right now, it does really well in, in tests that we can throw at it. Steph Curry was like top 40 in the league in defensive EPM. I mean, he was a good defender for a guard this year, but it's just you see this over and over. Like you can look at Tony Parker with the Spurs and there are years where it's like Tony Parker is one of the 40 best defenders in the league. And I just think because defensively, you, the better you are, the more you commit to it, the better your personnel is, the more you can cover up mistakes, the easier it is to look like a good defender in those situations. So I've struggled with like Dirk, like, oh, is Dirk a much better defender in 2011 than he was in 2006 because his numbers are better? Uh, I don't, and now I feel like there's a different coach and he's flanked by, he's flanked, let's see who he's flanked by, Cody. He's flanked by Tyson Chandler, Sean Marion, and Jason Kidd. Uh, I have a hard time with it. So I, you know, when I go back to his peak, I go back and forth. I think, and to your point too, about 2011, um, I'm just looking up some box score numbers. I think people think that he had his heater series during the heat series. And ultimately, like compared to the rest of the playoffs there, that's really not that excellent of a series for him. But if you go back to the first round of 2011, let me read you some of these, Ben. Let me read you some numbers. You know so, what I think you're doing right now? I think I you're trying... To, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. You were saying we weren't going to get stuck on players <laughs> for 20 minutes, and now you're going into Dirk Nowitzki 2011 series stats. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, look, I just pulled up this article about Dirk. How about I just read it word for word here, and I'll include my analysis. Anyway, he scores 25 points a game. These are just raw numbers. You just need the raw numbers. He shoots 57% from the field. He shoots 90 4% from the free throw line. That's fine. But Ben, across these four games, they sweep the Lakers. He's shooting 73% from three. That's all I wanted to say. A 57-73-94 slash line in the first round of the playoffs. That probably helped buoy his, his efficiency just he a didn't little need, bit. He did not need threes in that series. Whoever no. <laughs> was on him, he just put in the toaster oven. Uh, that was an incredible display, that series. Okay, so Dirk is at 15. We talked about Oscar Robertson at 14. And now we get into this group that contends for the top 10. And as I said, like, I have no idea what the heck we're going to call a uh, title this podcast episode because, you know, podcast episodes, you can't have like five, six sentences as the title. Um, but usually we talk about two guys in an episode. And today it's 
Carl Malone, Kobe Bryant, Magic Johnson, Larry Bird. These guys all are pretty close for me. They're kind of in like a group, a tier, if you will. Although, you know, I, I don't love tiers, but they're they're pretty close together. And the that gets us to the 10. The guy at the top of this gets us to 10. So we'll come back at the end of the episode and kind of talk about how I, how I uh, stack these guys up. But let's start with Malone. And the thing about Malone that I think stands out to me, one, he is like the highest example, even higher than Dirk, the highest example of a longevity merchant moving up this list. I think if you look at my peak ranking of Malone, it's more like top 30 all time. And we're talking about a, you know, a top 13 player of all time here. This group pushing for top 10 career value. If you we've talked about 8-year primes, his best 8-year stretch. I have that at 18th. So that's closer to like top 20. And just for some perspective, Malone in a lot of the other rankings publications is often like late teens, early 20s. Of course, never winning a title hurt, uh, but I, there's only so much most people want to push someone forward for pure longevity. Like you, you hear Malone is the guy you hear where people are like, well, what if he played 30 years like that instead of 15? Would he be your, would he be your goat? Even though he has like the 20th or 30th best peak of all time. It's like, okay, that's why it makes people uncomfortable. I get it. But in this case had a pretty good peak. And the thing that we talked about with Stockton, that's so interesting with me for Malone is he, he looks very good in like 1988. In fact, in 1989, he's a unanimous vote for all NBA. That really threw me when I was looking at old uh, voting records recently. 1990 is this crazy scoring season in the regular season. And as many of you know, he won his last MVP in 1999. So, so it's like, what the heck is going on here that this guy has all these all NBA teams? Um, clearly, I think part of it is like James Harden. He's better in the regular season. So you get a ton of regular season mileage out of that. But the other part that was really interesting to me, Cody, is noting how he expanded his game. First was shooting when he was younger, and then his passing game, and how Utah started playing through him more in the post, a little less of that Stockton ball that we talked about in that episode. And by the time you get to the second half of the 90s, uh, even defensively, like he was always pretty good defensively, but just timing up his super quick feet, his super quick hands, being an annoying defender without being a big vertical paint presence, all that seems to come together in the second half of the night. So like you have Stockton ball and more of a Stockton and Malone reputation thing by the Dream Team, 1988 to 1992. And then kind of post-Dream Team 1, you start to shift more toward this Malone stuff. And the results for Utah are, are pretty good. And you end up with a guy um, who like I said, probably has the lowest peak of anyone within like 10 spots. Like, I think the last time we talked about a peak that's in this range for me is probably like Charles Barkley, something like that. Maybe, maybe Dr. J, although I think I prefer Dr. J's. And yet he just does it for so long. Like he's, he's good in the year 2001. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. 
Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Yeah, and the, the thing that I want to focus on with Carl Malone, because you, you look at the regular season numbers like you're talking about, just year in, year out, this guy is flirting with the high high 20s, maybe even hitting 30 adjusted points per 75 possessions, really great efficiency, and that plummets. I think there's like one season, maybe like 92. He has a great, great efficient scoring postseason. But beyond that, it drops, and it drops a lot. He's in the negative efficiency for a lot of these playoffs, and I think a lot of that has to do with just, I, I don't know if you find this to be the same thing, but he struggled to finish because he just didn't have like a big arm span. He wasn't particularly tall compared to the other trees down low, and I think that that hurt his finishing ability, and he kind of just hung out at the, the mid-range and scored in that way quite a bit. Um, but He did he did more of that in the, in the second half of... The 90. It's part of this shift that I was talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. You get it to him at the mid post and he can pass, hit the cutters, Utah split cuts, stocked and back cuts. He loved the jumper. He loved the face up, face up and drive. But it was more stuff at the basket, more driving, more finishing off of Stockton when he was earlier in his career. And then later in the career, as you're talking about, you just see more jumpers from the outside. Okay. And I'll, I'll, I'll keep all my questions you know, shorter so we don't end up talking about him for, for 40 minutes or something. But the main question I wanted to ask, though, is if you were to somehow just like cut off the postseason, you're like, playoffs never happened for any player. Where do you think Carl Malone would actually land peak wise then? Because his regular season numbers are pretty significantly better than his playoff numbers. That is an interesting question. Uh, he's very high. Like some of his regular season numbers are blipping. Um, in my database, when I use the percentiles, when you get to a certain point, it'll just say a hundredth, even though, you know, it's like literally, uh, you know, some people are like, there's no hundredth percentile. It's very high. It's very, very high. Some of his numbers, some of his, like his plus minus numbers in the middle of the decade we have are very good. Uh, Utah's offenses were very good, as we've discussed. So uh, off the top of my head, um, I don't have a great frame of reference for like who else he'd be competing with but his peak instead of being like a top 30 peak would probably be more like a top 10 peak if we're just talking about regular season I think and I think that aligns with like him winning MVP so late in his career and racking all the the all NBA awards and things like that so ultimately like where do you think he factoring in the playoffs now of course where do you think he did peak and how many of those sorts of seasons did he end up racking up boy um I think with Dirk, it was more like it was more like looking at two peaks. Uh, it, it's like 2006 is this one period, and 2010, 2011 is this other period. And what are the trade-offs with Malone? It's interesting because you can probably go as early. I know in 1990 he has this crazy scoring season, and again, as I mentioned, 1989, he's unanimous All NBA first team. It's kind of crazy to think about how high people were on him that early on, and then of course he's like still a scoring machine and getting accolades in the in the early 2000s. But 1990 has this crazy regular regular season um, scoring output. As I said, I think he was still more limited. I think some of that was the beneficiary of playing with Stockton at his best. But by the time you get to 1992, like, is there enough athleticism? Where's his defense? I don't think his defense is probably quite at its peak, but he still is able to get to the basket better, I think. 
So I wouldn't call that his peak, but that's the first year I think about it. That's the first year I'm like, oh yeah, that's a that's a that's a pretty nice uh, soft um, soft MVP level season starting in 1992, and then he just rips off like seven of those in a row through 1998. Which one's the best? I think 94 to 96, somewhere in there, is probably the best. I think his defense is a little better. I think I really like his passing. And at that point in time, being able to play with a guy who can space the floor a little as a big man, like Nowitzki. Now, they don't shoot threes back then. So if you're not familiar with like 2000s and 90s ball, you could still get a little extra space by having these bigs who could step out and didn't camp out on one of the blocks. Malone, as you know, one of the great pick and roll players ever and a great pick and pop partner because at that point in time, his shot was better so you could play pick and pop. So this like 94, 96, that kind of period where he still has some athleticism, his passing continues to get better, his shot is on point, you can play offense through him and his defense may be the most active and best. You know, He gets really good defensively uh, for what he was. He wasn't a vertical guy. He was a low, like, you know, move your feet, get into people. Man defense in the post was a bigger thing then. He was so strong. We talked about how he disrupted David Robinson in playoff series. So I would probably say like the 94 to 96 stretch. Now, what, the thing I remember about his defense too is, I don't know why Paul Millsap comes to mind, but like the hands down low in the post and just stripping people when they went up. I felt like Carl Malone is really good at it. And for some reason, I think Paul Millsap is really good at it. I have no numbers to back that up, but that feels like something that Millsap was. I don't, Millsap's not as strong as Malone, didn't have that same like bruising style. And, you know, we talked about it on the Barkley Patreon pod, but um, I think being able to defend one-on-one against people backing down probably adds a little bit more value in the 90s yeah. as well, just because of illegal yeah. defense and spacing and stuff. So, so that's probably, you know, if people are like, wait, how is he actually better at defense later in his career? Well, because I think he learned some of these tricks and he's just stronger, too. And his feet, his feet were so quick, even though he was he was like a bodybuilder. I think he had more up top. I think he had a big upper body and he was he didn't have a ton of weight in his legs. And the way he just moved his feet for his size was kind of extraordinary. And to your point, he was really well known for having these quick hands and swipe downs. So. All of that, you know, we've talked about it throughout this series. You add that up and you're like, how many lower level MVP seasons could you argue from that? Um, I don't I don't know. Was it eight hmm. or something? It's it's a lot. And then on the periphery, he's got all NBA. I have him as all NBA in 2001 and I have him as all NBA starting in 1988. So that is uh, 14 consecutive seasons. That's that's a lot. But that's a different that is a different kind of shape than another guy. I mean, that's that's true longevity to me than another guy uh, known for a lot of longevity, and that's Kobe Bryant. And Kobe, again, I don't know how many new thoughts I have, except to say, I think coming out of greatest peaks, I was a little higher in general on on Kobe. One, because of a lot of a lot of thoughts in the last four or five years for me about communication and awareness and understand, understanding scheme defensively and realizing that and learning kind of over the years more about the Lakers and Phil Jackson and just going through and seeing Phil Jackson's defensive principles 
going back to series in the 90s and realizing like, I think there is a little extra value in the postseason. Kobe's regular season defense, of course, is very famous for having all these all defensive teams. And, and then there are people who like look at the data like you and me and we're like, now, wait a second, you can look at film and you can look at data and there's no way he should be making all defensive teams after X number of year, after X year, excuse me, early 2000. I think I would vote him on a handful of all defensive teams, and that's it. 99, 2000, things like that. Um, but in the playoffs, when you crank up your defense just a little bit more and you have awareness of scheme, I think there was a little extra value there that I really appreciated doing his greatest peak series. So I got a little bump there. And then offensively, one of the things um, for me in real time watching Kobe I was someone who was always frustrated by his shot selection and all these long twos that he took. And it was really weird to debate in real time because you're like, you're like, it's not a good shot. One, it's double teamed. You could probably get something better in the offense. But two, 22 foot jumpers with your feet on the line, you're just bleeding value. Go closer or take a step back. And of course, at that point in time, people yelled at you and they called you like a hater and they called you crazy. And now I think it's a little easier to accept. But again, going back and doing Greatest Peaks, even though that is a thing, I actually don't think that's the big reason why he never hits like incredible efficiency heights that some of the greatest... Like he's on my list of great scorers ever, but the guys ahead of him with better efficiency, I don't think that's the reason he falls short. I think he bleeds a little value there. I think it's a bigger issue like he just doesn't have the quickness to generate rim pressure like Michael Jordan or something like that. And I think Kobe gets so much back with the versatility of his skill set, with his difficult shot making, with the fact that he is very active off ball. He can do it all over the court. He can hit threes off the catch, uh, off the dribble. He can play pick and roll. He can play mid post. He can play high post. He can play low post. He can play in the triangle. I, I think the totality of that still makes with the passing, playmaking, scoring, uh, an offensive player that it's like, yeah, he's never going to be able to generate the exact same type of pressure that Shaq or Jordan or even sometimes LeBron does. But I think I was a little bit more impressed with that coming out of it, realizing like he's not taking 11 long contested twos a game like that happens like once or twice a game. That's not the actual reason why he's not posting 65 percent true shooting numbers. I'm glad you brought up the Jordan comparison, because something that I was thinking about, especially watching a ton of Jordan and then, you know, going back and watching some Kobe for our our conference finals uh, series that we did earlier in the summer, is that, you know, I think you mentioned it in your profile that Kobe's one of the greatest tough shot makers in history. And when I would watch Jordan, you know, he made plenty of tough shots. But when I would watch him, I wasn't thinking to myself, I was never like, you know, Jordan's really not taking that many tough shots. Like, this is not the kind of thing he's making. And I think part of that is Jordan was better at generating easier shots for himself, right? He had better tools. He had better moves. He was able to get into that space better. And because Kobe wasn't quite as quick, because Kobe didn't have, I think he had actually pretty small hands relatively. I remember Phil Jackson talking about that. He wasn't able to cup and and create some of the same sorts of uh, situations for himself. Um, Athletically, I mean, he was very athletic jumping wise, vertical wise when he was younger, but... 
I just didn't think that he was able to make, even in the mid-range, those kinds of open shots that Jordan was able to make. And I think, you know, it's a tough psychological thing. When you're able to make the tough shots, it's always a balance of like, well, when do I take the tough shots? When do I not take them? But um, that, that's just one thing that I always saw that separated him from the apex, true all-time level offensive players like Jordan in those situations. Yeah, so the the takeaway is I like his peak a little bit more. Uh, I've talked about him as being on the relatively short list of all-time offensive greats, although uh, there's there's a few there's a few we'll talk about uh, today in a second that I think are better. But uh, you add that up, starting in 2001 and going to 2010, I think he is an all all excuse me not all he is an MVP level player, and then. There's some peripheral seasons with some all NBA stuff. So it's similar to Carl Malone. I actually think Carl Malone has more longevity on the number of seasons, but I think Kobe has both a better peak and sort of the prime years when he's at his best are are a little better than Carl's. So they're in, they're in a similar boat. Oh, yeah, go ahead. I was going to clarify, how many seasons of MVP level play did you say for Kobe? I know you well, said the th- years, but what? how many? Yeah, it? yeah. So 2001 to 2010 is 10. Mm, okay, okay. Yeah. Um, although, you know, he has like a down... When you start to get into the fact that he misses time and he has a down year in 2004, is that an MVP level season? Maybe not when you account for the missed time, uh, but it's, it's close, right? It's close to a low level uh, MVP season. Same thing with 2005, which is also a down year. But frankly, I think in the year 2000, when he was really young and and has that famous moment in the finals where Shaq fouls out and he hits the four jumpers in overtime, I, I technically have that, I think, as very high All-NBA. But I mean, again, you're talking about a guy that like in a given year is what a top seven or eight player in the league or something like that. So I think he has that on some of these peripheral years. So um, it, it's, yeah, it's it's a strong body of work compared to these other guys. Then we get to the last two candidates for this number 10 spot in this group. And it's Magic Johnson and Larry Bird, the legendary pairing. Uh, I don't think I've ever done a podcast, an article, or a video directly comparing or contrasting them I feel like in a, in a way it's been done to death uh, but I I did come out of greatest peaks more impressed with bird let's put it that way more impressed with bird like from, Relative- from the all-time level that people are thinking about him you came away even more impressed about him no I mean from the perspective of like after I, I did it chronologically, so I watched Bird and then Magic, and I watched them together. And of course, one of the things that you have to remember is Bird was better early. You you asked, I, was it last episode? You asked me in one of the recent episodes about great rookie seasons, right? Yeah, I asked about Oscar, I think. Oscar, okay, yeah. I think Bird's rookie season was better than Oscar's rookie season. I think Bird's rookie season has a chance unless i'm forgetting someone i think it has a chance yeah i'll say it has a chance to be the goat rookie season and i'll i'll put some more perspective on that i think there's a handful of players in history and larry bird is one who were strong mvps as rookies hmm. and that's how i see larry bird in 1980 but there's a big asterisk which is he's 3 years older than magic so Magic was 20, you know, leaving college early. Bird kind of was late. He was like 23 
in his rookie season in 1980. So if you drew an aging curve for Bird, it might not look that accelerated. It might not look that different from other great players or someone like Magic. It's just he was in college when he was older. You know, he, he went to Indiana and then he left Indiana and then he went to Indiana State and then he stayed at Indiana State. And it wasn't until like his age 23 season that he hit the NBA. And he was, to me, pretty clearly the best player. Uh, I, I mean, I don't even know if it's debatable to anyone. Like he was clearly the best player on the 1980 Celtics. That team had one of the biggest turnarounds in NBA history, going from 29 wins the year before, something like that, to 60 wins. Uh, They were competitive for a championship. Bird was the centerpiece of the offense. He was a super active defender. He was just crazy motor and active everywhere. And so I very much view early Bird, 1980 to like 1983, as a similar player who's learning, 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 learning. And then 1984 comes and he starts to use the three more and it starts to all come together. And he he gets older, so he's losing a little of his defensive activity. But that's when you start to get like the all-time level offensive player in Larry Bird. And he just hits this, you know, three, four-year peak, 1984 to 1987, which is essentially what was discussed in Greatest Peaks. I really like that that rookie take. That's a that's a good hot take to start off with. The other two guys that came to mind were Duncan and Kareem. Um, I don't know if we want to get into that at all, but I feel like those are the two guys immediately that I'm like, maybe he's competing with them here. Well, uh, some of the guys, so it's Kareem. Um, Duncan is also very high. And then Wilt Chamberlain also mm-hmm. has a ridiculous rookie season. I think those would be my candidates for goat rookie season. So we can we can table that and come back to it when we hit some of those other players in in the top 10. Um but Birds is at that level to me. He's just I think 1980-1981 are probably his best defensive years. He gets all defensive awards for I want to say 3 straight years in the early 80s. He's such an active team defender and it's like this trade-off of errors, right? Like how valuable was it back then to be a good man defender? I think he was perfectly good in the post, but on the perimeter, especially if you asked him to play small forward, that's where he could have issues. Quicker feet in the early 80s, no doubt, but later on, you know, a lot of people sort of um, dragged him for being weak defensively because of this, but crazy good defensive rebounder, incredible awareness, positioning, rotations that you just didn't see a lot of guys making early because he's anticipating the plays, reading the play. Great hands, great reflexes. It's kind of disruptive, gets his hands on balls. When he's younger, he'll block more shots than you think around the paint, even though he's not a great vertical athlete because he is a big 6'9 dude. So I feel like his best defensive years were like his first two or three seasons. I think he gets some accolades a year after that uh, because of reputation and things like that. And then he's still a very good active defender when you hit his peak before he, he kind of starts to have defensive issues. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So I think talking about his man defense here, the one thing that he didn't have to deal with in the 80s, because we talked about it a little bit with Isaiah Thomas, is that there's not many like little guys that are necessarily going to be like, all right, empty isolation, I'm taking you one-on-one, I'm going to the rim, right? There just wasn't many, weren't many players that did that, and the paint was a lot more packed. So Bird just wasn't in that kind of a position where he's going to get burned as much by smaller, quicker players. And I actually thought when he guarded players that were maybe a little bit slower and bigger, like even like uh, late stage Dr. J, times that I saw him defending him I thought he was great in man situations he had a solid reach on contests he was strong he was a big guy so he could body people up when they were trying to go at him and so I, I don't necessarily think compared to what you would see now I don't think that 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 uh maybe weakness to quicker players was as detrimental then as it would be yeah and I don't want to talk about Magic's defense mm-hmm. in a second as well but he played with, uh, they brought Robert Parrish in. He played with Kevin McHale, although McHale didn't really ramp up until like 83 or 84 because he was younger. And you look at the Celtics defense all the way through like 1988, Cody. Uh, they are in, you know, if you look at playoff defenses in three-year stretches, they played 58 playoff games from 1986 to 1988. I have them at the 78th percentile uh, in my database three years. If you look at common playoff opponents, if you look at uh, raw defense, it's not quite as good, but the the defenses that, uh, or the, excuse me, the offenses that went against the Celtics opponents in the playoffs fared much better against those other opponents than they did against the Celtics right through like the late 80s. And they were much higher. They're in the 90th percentile earlier on in the decade from 1984 to 1986. So they always had good defensive teams, whether Bird was at the four, whether it was playing the three, whether it was right out of the gate where it's like, you know, Dave Cow, old Dave Cowens is his center or something like that. And it was, it's just kind of weird going back through the first six or seven years to think about this huge negative defensive reputation he has because everyone is fawning over his defense when you watch the games because he was so well known as this team defender concept, this guy that it wasn't just about the man. It was about coming over and helping a guy. It was about flying into the paint. It was about jumping into a passing lane and making some brilliant play to throw it back to a teammate and then spark a fast break or something like that. So I I like his defense early. I'm like semi convinced that Larry Bird is psychic. Like he just yeah. has natural abilities to know where things are. And you know, I have a couple of reasons to say this. I'm, I'm semi serious here, Ben. He had a couple steals, and we talked about it with the Chris Paul episode. Do we have too many players we've talked about? We talked about the Chris Paul episode where like he's making steals where he's not watching the ball and he's just kind of in space and just throws his hand up and tips it and gets the steal. It's it's unbelievable because you're watching it. You're like, there's literally no way you would have known where to put. Like, you slow it down. You didn't watch, like, where the player was at first. And then he had this weird psychic connection 
situation with Dennis Johnson, where yeah. like they would run like floppy, right? Where he's he's in the middle of the paint, and there's a couple of, of stagger screens on either side of him, and the defenders are so afraid of Larry Bird popping out and hitting that catch and shoot mid range or whatever else that they just like forget that he can move two feet to the right and then get a layup pass. And this happens so many times that it's honestly jarring to see this. It's like, how how, how did you two know this? Why are you two the only ones that knew that that bird was going to be there? So uh, that's my evidence for why Larry Bird is actually psychic. I'm pretty convinced that when Larry Bird's asked, like, who the best player he ever played with was, and he says Dennis Johnson, it's strictly because Dennis Johnson could read his mind. He's like, DJ was the only guy who knew that I would cut and I would be wide open, or that when we were running floppy, you could just lob it over the top, and I would also be ready for the pat. I, I think it's entirely that connection that you're talking about. Watching Bird play defense and then watching Magic in Greatest Peaks was very interesting to me because... You could see something like this, like an entry pass against Bird. We talked about it in a prior episode. Or when Bird doubled the post. You know, you had all this post offense in the 80s and 90s. So doubling the post was like the most amazing strategic concept that coaches would come up with. Is it going to be the X double or the Y double? Where's it going to come from? How are we going to rotate when the double comes? Bird's, Bird's hands in those situations were way more disruptive and way more destructive than magic and magic in those situations was more like feigning at the ball or things like that. But big caveat here is that I watched more magic in the second half of the decade because he was younger. So when magic came in, we got to start with 1980, like 1980 has this reputation of like, Oh my God, magic and bird bird was like fighting for MVP in 1980. Magic was like fighting to make an all all NBA team. And it wasn't this incredible season that he had. I like, by the way, I like Magic's rookie season a ton. Um, but it wasn't at this level yet. But then he has this last game to end the season in game six, which is like maybe the best game Magic Johnson plays for like the next five years. It's just incredible how good he is in that game against the 76ers, game six of the 1980 finals to close out that series. And it, it gets even more lore because he like, quote unquote, jumped center. I don't know why jumping the jump ball is so important. Um, does he play center in the game? Sort of a little, but he plays more elbow high post. He plays plenty of point guard like he normally does. Uh, it, it's, it's a great game. The point I'm making here is that they were, they were different defensively. They had different aging curves. And when Magic was younger, I think he was a better defender as well. And he was employed in this like, or deployed maybe is the better word, in this like trap, this half-court trap that the Lakers would run. And they would almost have Magic be like a rover. And he would try to anticipate off ball. And he would just be bouncing around defensively around the free throw line area and like switching on to guys the entire possession. You're like, who are you guarding on this possession? He's like, everyone. That's who I'm guarding. <laughs> well, okay. Are you like Kevin Garnett or Andre Kirilenko? Are you being destructive? No, I'm not being destructive. I'm just chasing the ball constantly and being a pest. And because I'm Magic Johnson and my basketball intuition and IQ is off the charts, I'll pick up some steals. I'll, ma I'll make some nice rotations. So a big question mark for me, Cody, is like how good... I think Magic Johnson's early defense is probably a positive. He doesn't ever really have any rim protection. I don't think the man likes to jump. Um, he still doesn't have great lateral movement. Remember, he is like a good 6'8". But 
it's fascinating to think about that IQ and his length and his anticipation and his defensive rebounding and you know, how good could he have been defensively in those early years? And what does that mean for the value of his prime that he accrues over the course of the 80s? And those those gambles paid off sometimes, at least. Like, I'm, I'm throwing out 1981 because he only played 37 games that season. But in 1982, he literally leads the league in steals per game at 2.7. But I yep. think you even bring up in his initial profile that you, you hand-tracked a good chunk of, of Magic Johnson games and found that his, like, risk-taking, his gambles we're off the charts in the fact that it just like wasn't paying off. Do you do you recall doing this exercise? Yeah, yeah, but this goes back to what I was saying about Kobe. Uh, Kobe has, I think, one of Kobe's biggest biggest weaknesses as a man defender. He has this reputation as like when he whenever he wants, he could just come in and stop. That's ridiculous. No one in NBA history does that. What you're trying to do is limit a player's good shots, the spots they get to, things like that. And Kobe, when he was younger, I think he was very good. Middle of his 2000s, middle of his prime, things like that. He was pretty good. He was pretty good. He had plenty of good defensive possessions on the ball. But one of his weaknesses was he'd get blown by a lot. Whether it was heavy feet, conserving energy, that's the one I would bet on, by the way, conserving energy, Um, you know, whatever, he would get blown by a lot. But the Lakers did what's called peel switching a ton, and Kobe does it instantly. So he's in a key possession, uh, his man takes him, and he's... He's essentially funneling that person into the next defender, whether it's Shaq or Robert Ory or whatever, whoever's on the team at the time, uh, Pau Gasol or Andrew Bynum. And Kobe is is veering off and taking and he's immediately moving toward the open man that 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 new defender left. And systems like this and understanding systems like this really mitigate those errors. So that's something to me that it's like, eh, I'm not going to penalize as much as I used to. Similarly, with Magic, one question I have is, yeah, okay, so he gambles a ton. But what's the context of that gambling? Isn't he doing it because Kareem is behind him? And you can watch some of these possessions where he's like going for steals and whiffing. And what I wonder is if you hand-tracked a ton of them, like 500, would the efficiency be better than the average person who gambles and misses on the average team when you gamble and miss when I was tracking every playoff game you know back in the day there was a pretty severe penalty for getting blown by like that but within the context of a specific defensive scheme like the Lakers trap I'm not sure the penalty was as severe and so this is where in my head I'm like I I wonder if you can view Magic's defense as a little bit better at this point in time. I don't know. I see your deep in thoughts. So I'm going to throw one more, one more thing out there. Justin Jacobs, uh, basketball researcher, he has tracked plus minus for hundreds of 1980s games at this point. I don't know what his total is up to. I, I think his goal is to just do this until the end of time. Uh, <laughs> he tries to get his hands on old games and then and track the plus minus and, and create old play by play. Birds plus minus looks plenty good in the sa- again. It's a sample across different years. I think he's got like 150 bird games or something, maybe 200 bird games. It looks pretty good. You know, obviously the Celtics are good with him on the floor. They were a good team every year. And I think his on off the change when he goes to the bench off the top of my head is something like, I don't know, seven points or eight points. 
Magix looks great. Magix is like, in the games he's tracked for Magic, again, might be like 150 games spread out across the decade. All regular season games, I believe. It's like plus 15, maybe. And, you know, if it's 200 games, it's two and a half years. Plus 15 is pretty normal to see. But assuming that's not, not just noise, and Magic does have like a little regular season boost in plus minus, I would think it's the combination of his defense not being as leaky as you think his defense is combined with, oh yeah, he's, he is like that, that intuition on offense, that basketball IQ, that sixth sense that he has all that passing. Yes. It just is that valuable. That's really interesting. So almost the idea is that if magic were to have been in a better defensive system that had more, uh, that had something built in that would allow him to gamble like that and peel switch and whatever else, that maybe it actually would have been better? Are you making the hypothetical argument or are you just saying that gambling in general, uh, or at least in that context he was playing in, wasn't as detrimental as it might seem at first blush? Uh, definitely the last thing you just said, it wouldn't be as detrimental because, and what I'm saying here is, it was more part of the scheme. Okay. It was more baked in. So he was more aware of what he was doing. And if you put him in a different system, he might not he might not have had as many steals. In fact, I would say he definitely wouldn't have had as many steals. But he wouldn't have had as many mistakes either. And so just the question becomes like, what can you do with this six eight dude who isn't very vertical at all? Um he has good hands. He has pretty good awareness so he can make he can make great defensive rotations occasionally it's it's again it's not at the same frequency or level as as bird to me but he can do that and then he doesn't have great lateral movement either neither of these guys it's like they're going to win foot shuffling contests moving left and right it's not Barry Sanders out there but i i don't know i don't know what the answer is but it's fascinating to me because i almost feel like with the plus minus data coming in, um, you could maybe see Magic as having, I actually do. I, I think I'll spoil that right now. I see Magic as having a wider range than Burt. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that range or should we should we keep going with the offense and defense here? I think we should come back to the range in a second. I'm trying to figure okay. out. We've got these four candidates. We've talked about Carl yeah. Malone. I think we've talked about Kobe. Um, with Magic and Bird, let's let's get to their peak. How about that? Is that where you wanted to go? I just want to talk about offense, Ben. I just want to talk about offense with these yep, two. Yep. So uh, with Magic, as I said, he really starts ramping up in like 1983, 1984. Norm Nixon is the other point guard there. So he finally goes 1984. Magic gets the keys to the car. He starts driving that beautiful Showtime Lamborghini. Um, man, those they were so fun to watch. Uh, but I don't think he, I don't think he really gets to like true all time level. Well, I mean, he's at a true all time level peak earlier, but just it's the offensive absolute apex, nineteen eighty seven, and it's a combination of a post game. Magic was a really good post score. I don't think people internalize that all the time. The incredible passing pick and roll and he was a good outside shooter and he didn't you know I always wonder like could magic have taken a ton of threes I feel like with his kind of set shot and high release he could have been a prolific three-point shooter maybe not in the same percentages as someone like bird but 
His outside shot, like Cody, his 17 to 20 footer when you went under the screen and he wanted to fire and attack with his scoring, that thing was money. And he really builds that up in the middle of the 80s. So it all comes together in 1987. And I will add, even if 1988 is a little bit of a down year, he's got some lingering injuries in the postseason where he doesn't look quite as effective. So I don't think his 1988 season is quite as good. But you look at like 1989 and 1990 Magic, at this point in time, to me, offensively, that's basically right there with 1987. And you're just talking about majestically good all-time offensive seasons. We've mentioned it before in this series. I think candidates for the best offensive seasons ever. Uh, majestically is really the only way to describe magic here. And you talk about the post game. The first thing that comes to mind is I go right to the 91 finals where there, there's possession after possession when I watch this. When, when poor Michael Jordan... Poor MJ. Being posted up by Magic, he can't do anything. Like, he can't do anything. It's really shocking to go back and watch that series and be like, wow, Jordan's getting cooked by Magic in the paint. I I feel like you were just embodied momentarily with the spirit of Bill Walton when you were telling that story. You're like, poor Michael Jordan, he can't do anything. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's incredible. But then to the jump shot point... There, there's a there's a period, like you said, in the late 80s, because I feel like he doesn't fire it off as much. He's not like, he's not like, all right, it's my turn. I'm going to the basket. It's a lot more setting up Magic Johnson. But he just, like, ramps up that scoring aggression. And, you know, you, you drop down in the pick and roll, maybe. And he's taking these jumpers from maybe maybe a step inside the three-point line, like pull-up jumpers. Not like a traditional, like, go up and the, it's the smooth Steph Curry thing. Because like you said, his, his set shot was definitely a set shot. But he's definitely, like, off the dribble hitting, like, 20-footers fairly consistently. Like, I didn't, I didn't track, like, the percentages, but it seemed like they went in a fair amount. And anytime he was able to get a clean jumper, it felt pretty solid that it was going in, which is, you know, reflected by the fact that when he crests 90% from the free-throw line, at least once in his series. So this is a guy that had a touch with his jump shot. And I don't think many people think about that when they think about Magic Johnson. Yeah. Now with Bird, we're talking about a candidate for the goat shooter in the non-Steph Curry class. And frankly, when you adjust for era, maybe you could fold Steph Curry in there anyway as well. Because for me, I think the way you do this is you look at how someone shot relative to the rest of the people at the time to consider, I've done a video about practicing and how practicing, what you practice and the diversity of practice, how it influences the shooting percentages on things like three-pointers. And if you look at Bird's outside outside shooting, his free-throw numbers and his three-point numbers, uh, he is just way ahead of everyone else in his era overall. And, and, and he's early on this stuff and just... A ridiculous shoot. I mean, you get into like the 92-93% from the free throw line, and you just know the hand-eye coordination coordination is off the charts. And even watching like the practice videos that they used to make with Red Arback and watching Bird shoot in those videos, and like he was like Curry and that if he hit the rim, he'd be like, ah, I messed that one up. Um, 1987, I think it's game four where Magic hits the the baby sky hook going across the middle of the lane in Boston garden. And then the next possession, they have like three seconds left and they draw up a play for bird. Cause he was so good off ball catches it in the corner turns and shoots and just misses it. 
And he's talked about that one, I think, over the years, but immediately in the post game, And he's just like, he's like, I can't believe I missed that shot. Like, it, I turned, I had it. Yeah, yeah you remember this? I was going to say, what makes that more significant is maybe a minute before that is the famous play where James Worthy is just pulling on his jersey. Bird's able to slip away, and he hits the exact same shot from the same space. So he goes there, he's warmed up, he's primed with that position, and he misses it. And yeah, he's he's clearly very crushed by it. I think, yeah. is that the one where he gives the press where he's like, Magic Johnson's the best basketball player I've ever seen. Is this that I think one? So. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, it's either after, I don't know if it's after that game. I think it was after that series. Mm, okay. I think it was after they lost ultimately uh, in six games in that series. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Okay, so we'll talk a little bit in a second about the great sort of fact that Magic is like this on-ball passing transition and Bird is this off-ball. There's just these sort of perpendicular elements to how they played. But another thing I love about the everything we've talked about with this series and adding up careers and um, how many MVP seasons and all that stuff. For Magic, you go like 1984 to 1991 and then boom, just completely stopped because of HIV. And in 1991, to me, Cody, that's a strong, that's a strong MVP level player when he leaves basketball. So Magic ends his career there's no all these trailing extra seasons. Yeah, he comes back in 1996 for a few weeks and all that. But basically, Magic ends his career with eight consecutive MVP quality seasons in my book. Bird starts his career with nine consecutive MVP quality seasons in my book, misses an entire year, 1989. And then I actually think 1990 Larry Bird might be like, where I was thinking about this the other day, it's, it might be the most underrated season in NBA history. I don't know anybody that waxes poetic about 1990 Larry Bird, and yet, like, it's ridiculously good that season. That's probably a low-level MVP season. Do you have the stats for that season in front of you? Uh, from your database or raw? It'll just, just do raw. So in 1990, during the regular season, Larry Bird averages 24 points per game. Nine and a half rebounds a game, seven and a half assists a game, shoots 93%. (laughs) Let me say that again. 93% from the free throw line. And that's a season that's like an afterthought for this guy. Yeah, no one talks about it. It's like he goes down 89, that's it for Bird. Exactly. It doesn't count. Nothing, Nothing good happened after 1989. All that is to say it's just incredible that Bird starts his career and then kind of, you know, the injury happens and that's mostly it. And then with magic, it's this ramp up, this ramp up. And then he just starts accruing all these seasons and then it boom, instantly stops uh, in 1991. And you end up with bird dominating to some degree, the first half of the decade and magic, the second half um, offensively, I have, it's really interesting because they're, they're both such extremes in a way. Magic is so good at passing, and we've talked about how underrated he was as a scorer. Maybe we should mention that while we're here. Maybe it's a good medium to do that. Magic Johnson, 1990 in the playoffs, 
Averaged 24 points per 75, adjusted for opponent, plus 8% true shooting. The man was always uh, around, like, you started 1986, 20 plus 6. 1987, 21 plus 7. 20 plus 8. This is all this guy did, and if he, if you needed a 28 or 36-point game, if you needed to go to the post and they didn't want to double, um, he would torture you with his scoring, Obviously, one of the great transition players ever with the passing. And then, uh, Cody, just double-teaming. Why would you ever double-team Magic? I still don't understand it. It's just the worst idea ever. So you have this ball-dominant on-ball style. And then Bird is so much about movement and off-ball and extra passing and touch passing and offensive rebounding and just this perpetual motion around the court adding value, you know, we talked about Steph Curry as the greatest off-ball player ever. Uh, if he's one, I think Bird's two. And the interesting thing about Bird is like when you add in his passing and his offensive rebounding, does he actually go to one? Lots of catch and shoot. I love how quick hitting the actions are. And I think these styles are so different to some degree when you're this extreme in style. It's like, how do you corral the value? What do you compare it to? Do we just need more data? It, it's tricky, but I almost feel a little bit more uncertainty with the range with Bird because there's part of me that's like, God, how on the short list of offensive peaks, how many names can you get above him? But then you see some of the weaknesses, like in his Greatest Peaks video, I talked about his weakness finishing at times and layups. And I think, I think you see this with his scoring numbers in the postseason. Always a good scorer, but against the best competition, um, never quite had the the high-end scoring numbers that you want. Like at his peak, he's like 23 plus 8, 24 plus 5, 25 plus 8. It's actually not that different in volume from Magic at his peak, or maybe not as extreme as you would think. I think with Magic, the one thing that he's able to do, and what's, what's really interesting is when, when you get into the later 80s, mid-80s, late 80s, his scoring ramps up, and you see it on the tape, tape scoring ramps up, and creation ramps up. He's able to to create better opportunities. And I think we've talked about this before, where it's so difficult or impossible to separate these different discrete skills. You can't look at passing unless you also look at scoring. Because, like you said, you have to throw double teams at Magic because he's posting up someone that's smaller in the post. Left-hand hook, right-hand hook, he's spinning into you. Like, he's got he's got it all down there. But if you double-team him, all of a sudden, he's he's whipping the, the ball around. He's finding layups and things like that. So when you ramp up one, the other gets ramped up. And while Larry Bird was tremendous off ball, he never seemed to have that same ability that Magic had. His his handle, to me, was comparatively weaker. He wasn't able to break players down off the, um, off the dribble. Uh, he wasn't able to pressure defenses that way or make, to make them bend in the same sort of degree. And I think that along with even like Magic's straight line foot speed and transition was another thing that unlocked. Because if we're talking like the greatest transition players ever, what it's it's LeBron and Magic and everyone else after that. And I think when you add all of those things up, to me, it, it creates a player that is just a little bit more valuable than Larry, even though Larry obviously would fit next to other high-end talent in like a, a portability sort of conversation. Are you saying offensively or are you saying in, when you include defense? I'm saying offensively. Yeah, offensively. That's that's where I land as well. Yeah. Um, now, there is a caveat that I think is worth mentioning before before we kind of tally up the seasons and figure out who actually is is 10th or whatever it means to be 10th. We talk about the ranges on these guys. 
I think the caveat here for me is that Magic with the Lakers legitimately played the weakest competition for most of a decade going through the Western Conference. And there's two things to remember there. One, as we've talked about before, some players and teams can have pretty pretty decent differences playing high-end competition versus low-end competition. So one, that's going to influence your stats because you're only getting the sample of games against the weak teams for the most part. I'm not going to read it and go through it. Um, it's been talked about before, and if you want to go check it out, you can go to Basketball Reference. And it's just the West did not have many other good teams for most of these years that the Lakers and Magic were at his best. So it, it affects the stats. But the other thing that... I don't know how to quantify Cody. I don't know how to do this, but I, I just kind of know it's a thing. The Lakers got to play teams that didn't stress them or push them to the limit, and then they got to rest. The Celtics kept beating championship-level teams in wars that wore down the entire team. I mean, we know about Bird. We know about his injuries. We know about the back and the feet and the shin splints and the bar fight and the hand. McHale with his broken foot. It, it just takes its toll. And they were playing the 76ers, your Milwaukee Bucks. Uh, the Atlanta Hawks were very good at it for a couple years in the 80s. It was just always something over these years for the Celtics. And... I think when I did Greatest Peaks, I, I can't remember off the top of my head, but I want to say Bird... Ha no, I think he does have struggles when you get to the end against the Lakers. Is that because he always struggles with the Lakers' size and athleticism? Or again, is that because they had to go through these wars and they were worn down? Would things have looked different if the Lakers and Celtics met in the first round every year instead of the fourth round? I don't know. I don't think it's a huge thing, but it does create a little bit of a question in my mind of, of taking some of these things at face value. With all that said, I do tend to think the safer pick here is that Magic is a little bit better offensively. Uh, I, I have him as a kind of stronger GOAT offensive candidate along with some of the other people we've mentioned in this series. But I prefer Bird's overall peak just a smidgen I think because of the defense as discussed in Greatest Peaks and what's interesting is when I start to look at their ranges I start to think of like what is what is my high end versus low end look like I think because of some of the things we've talked about Bird has a little bit of a tail on the low end side of like yeah, it could actually be this actually could be a bigger problem that could fester in other situations. I'm more worried about that offensively, if anything, than defensively with Bird. But of course, Bird is such a savant. He is just the, the ultimate example of someone being able to take his skills and it looks like plug, just plug and play on any basketball team. And of course, the funny part of that is that when, when you know he was kind of discovered after leaving Indiana, I think it was after he left Indiana, he was like taking out the trash in his hometown for a job. That's what he did. And then he would like wear his street clothes and go to these men's leagues. And like the Indiana state coaches found him like dominate, they just walk on the court and dominate these guys. And that's what he did in college. And that's essentially what he did uh, in the NBA. So even with that little low tail, um, you know, we're still talking about someone I'm pretty comfortable discussing as one of the great offensive players ever. And because Bird has kind of like the contained 
nine season run to start his career and those like five incredible years from you know 19 or, or four 1984 to 1987 even the low end of that range ends up giving him it's weird Cody it ends up giving him kind of a narrower range to me than than magic um before I let the cat out of the bag and talk about how I stack up these guys, do you have any other questions? Well, I, I think one thing that I want to bring up with the fact that maybe he struggled against the Lakers more, it felt like James Worthy, and I got to be careful here because we're going to get into Terry Porter, Mark Price territory with Wanda, talk about James Worthy for, Worthy for the next hour. But James Worthy feels like the kind of guy that maybe bothered Bird a little bit more. And I think we saw this with, with Dennis Rodman as well when they were playing the Pistons. Like those kinds of 6'8 to 6'9 athletic strong guys were just kind of built to handle Bird. So I wonder if that has something to do with it. Um, but yeah, I guess ultimately when we're talking about peaks here, the one question that I would ask, and I don't know if this is the the cat that you're letting out of the bag here in a moment, but if, if Bird's defensive peak doesn't necessarily align with his offensive peak and Magic Johnson's defensive peak is, I don't know, somewhere from maybe slightly positive to neutral, do you think that either of them quite make it up to that all-time level band that you have? For overall peak? Yeah, for an overall peak. Yeah, yeah, I do. I think both of them do. Both? Yeah. Okay. Ooh, ooh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, man, James, I'm, I'm distracted because I'm now I'm thinking about James Worthy. He's so underrated. James Worthy is so underrated. Can, can, let me, okay, I have a question about that because that's, that's the thing that always I struggle with with, with Magic, right? Is because he's flanked. Then. <laughs> he's flanked by Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and James Worthy. And when you have these three guys in the 80s and I, we're, we're fawning over Magic Johnson's post game and how he torched Michael Jordan... He's probably the worst isolation post scorer out of the three. Like James Worthy's ISO game from that area is just a sight to behold. And I think you talked about it. Where even like where games that Magic misses, or this like great, that's fine. I'll self generate higher and even at a better efficiency rate. So how do you take like these literal just fantastic whatever peak you have for offensive guys for those two? How do you separate and look at it and be like this is actually Magic's contribution? compared to like what Worthy and Kareem are bringing? It's hard. I will say I think between the box score and game level data, whatever plus minus data we can scoop up, I think we feel comfortable enough knowing these guys are all-time level players. And so when the team is, oh, you have Kareem, you have James Worthy, who are the scrubs? Byron Scott and Michael Cooper. Um, you know, those teams are stacked. The Celtics had the exact same thing. Bird, Parrish, McHale. I do think, by the way, it's a huge notch in in Bird's cap and all all the things we've been talking about with his style of play and how well he fits and can scale. That they're just like, we have like two centers and like a 6'9 Bird. Bird, you just do whatever. If you need to play four, you play four. If you need to play three, inside, outside, you do whatever. And that helps. Uh, but, you know, who are the Celtics scrubs? Dennis Johnson and Danny Ainge. Uh, with that said... Both of them at different points in their career. Bird when he was younger, and then Magic when he was older, transitioning out of that Kareem team, playing with Worthy, and then some of the other guys as they were older. And then even 91, you had like Vladi Divac, who was really young, coming in. Yeah, Terry Teagle is getting minutes, and just, you know, random Lakers players. Sedale Threat. Um, I, I love saying early 90s Lakers players. Uh, Eldon Campbell, they get so excited. <laughs> just the images of Jack Nicholson sitting at the forum. Um, how many more could I do? I've run out. But basically, like, 
both of these guys at least showed us that when the teams weren't super stacked, you still you're still like 55 or 60 win teams. So I I think they remove enough of the doubts, but splitting the hairs, yeah, it's really hard. It's really hard for me splitting the hairs. Um, let's let's get to the ranges. So I had Carl Malone last time. I had him 14th. He's 13th this time only because Oscar uh, slipped down just a little bit behind him. And I think Malone's that just because of the longevity, his high end takes him about, I want to say eight ish. It takes him past the number nine guy. Let's put it that way. I don't know how much of an argument I could mount for number eight. And then the low range for Carl Malone is 17. Again, you play this many years and you play this many years at high quality, even when you try to go low. I mean, what are you going to, what are you going to do? Just say Carl Malone was never an MVP level player. It, it doesn't fit for me. Um, you know, maybe someone can mount that argument, but I'm not comfortable mounting that argument. Malone, as I said, typically late teens and early twenties and other publications. So here it makes sense. You look at just continuing to credit the extra miles he gets for those seasons. Uh, I would have him 13th Kobe Bryant at 12. That's a spot up from where he was in 2019 at the last update. The range is, again, just because of the way the longevity works, the range is a little different. I would say the low end here is about 15. I'm not sure I could get him into the the group at 16. There is a group at 16, 17, 18 that we've talked about in earlier episodes. So that's the low end for me for Kobe. And then the high end... Let's call it nine. I think, I don't know if I can mount, like like Carl just has so many seasons that you could maybe mount a case that he could challenge the guy at number eight, who we'll talk about next episode. But Kobe, let's just say he could pass, he could pass number nine and go to nine. So he's nine to 15. All right, who gets the 10th spot? Is that what you want to know? Oh, this is all I've been waiting for, Ben. This is all anybody cares about. Like, you can talk for 17 hours about all these other things. You can talk about ranges. You can talk about seasons, primes, peaks, one year, eight year. It doesn't matter. This is all the the number 10 spot is all anybody cares about. So in 2019, I had Magic Johnson at 10th. I had Larry Bird at 11th. In the article, I talk about how I went back and forth. Larry Bird, 10th. Magic Johnson, 11th. Bird just gets a little... He just gets a little bit more... He just gets a little bit more of a boost with me being just a little bit higher on his peak. Uh, as I talked about in Greatest Peaks, I have their peaks pretty close, I think. But again, the the range is so funny because I don't think I can get Bird higher than ninth because of his longevity. Because these are all contained in these seasons, the low end would be about 14th which would move him below Oscar Robertson, who we talked about last episode. And then Magic, I actually think, much like Carl Malone, Magic just from 84 to 91 and the uncertainties we talked about, like if you bump his offense a little, you bump his defense a little, I think Magic, you could mount an argument for against the number eight guy as well. All these guys um, can pass the number nine guy who we'll talk about next episode, but... Magic, I think I can go just a little bit higher on and maybe make a case for challenging number eight. All right, that's it. We talked about 31 players today. Um, any, <laughs> anything else you want to hit before we get out of here? The thing I want to emphasize is you just made a case that every single one of these players could be top 10. So keep that part of it in mind, everyone. If you're angry, there is a case. There is 
a case to be made for them to make the top 10. So no, you have to allow them to be angry. Oh. That's those, those are the rules of the game. They, if they, they can be angry. Um, what I think is interesting about what you just said, we talked about the Chris Paul, this, this outside case of how underrated Chris Paul is. So his high end was 10. Oscar Robertson, nine. Carl Malone, maybe challenging the eight. Magic Johnson, maybe challenging number eight. Kobe and Bird, up to number nine. That's seven guys that could be in the top 10. And Larry Bird is the one um, who, you know, push comes to shove. That's where I'm going to rank him in a single ranking. But it's really interesting to think about because then there's nine guys. You know, we're going to talk about the top nine when we wrap the series. So it's kind of like how Charles Barkley used to have 11 phone numbers in his fave five. Um, I have, you know, there's like really 16 top 10 players in NBA history, if that makes sense. Like there's a lot of players, well, maybe not like 40, but there's a handful of players that you can make pretty nice arguments could be in a top 10 just from this longevity career perspective. And I imagine it's a similar thing if we were to either say only peak uh, or only eight year prime or some combination of how people like to do criteria. In other words, when you're like the 13th or 14th best player of all time on someone's list, as long as as long as there's some fluidity to what you're talking about, you could probably make a case for that person to be number 10. And it, it's interesting because you said top nine, top eight. I haven't seen anyone possibly crack the top seven, six-ish. So I think we're getting to a period where some of these guys are going to have just some absurd absurd peaks and and longevity combinations well we're gonna we're gonna find out next time when we go into that territory uh if you want more you want to check out some of those patreon post shows we've done throughout this series patreon.com slash thinking basketball that's the best way just to directly support all things thinking basketball otherwise uh, thanks for uh hopefully this one this one made sense thanks for listening and following along as we made our way into the top 10 look forward to uh, man boy am i really excited about next episode well, well we'll see we'll see what happens when we get there but um yeah that's it let's wrap the show as always thanks so much for listening all the way through and wherever you are listening i hope you're having a great day 